Amen. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, we'll continue our study here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Last week, we just kind of ran out of time. We didn't come anywhere near finishing. We were at verse number 10. Um, in the middle of the verse, we actually left off. He says, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And that's kind of where we left off. As poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. Oh, you Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you. Our heart is enlarged. You're not straightening us, but you're straightening your own bowels. Now for recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children. Be ye also enlarged. Verse number 14, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. There's an amen all across the house right there. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father unto you. You shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So we looked there last week. Thank you. You can be seated at the first part there, verse number 10. And even in sorrows, we can always have joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in our sorrows, even in our difficult situation, even when our circumstances are not always perfect, our salvation is always sure. We can always have joy no matter what's going on in this life, no matter what's going on in our world, always have joy. If you remember, we kind of left off, we were looking at where Jesus, on the night of the crucifixion, Jesus is preparing to pay for the sin debt of all mankind and his closest friends, the disciples over here arguing about who's going to be the greatest when we come into the kingdom. He's there on the night when he knows that, that Judas is going to betray him. He knows that Peter is going to deny him and that all the others are going to forsake him and leave his side. Yet in everything in it, he finds joy because he is about to pay the sin debt for me and for you. He even said, as he was teaching in John chapter 15, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. But then we left off with the next part of it, as poor, yet making many rich. The word that Paul uses for poor here refers to a beggar. It's the same kind of word that's used when it's talking about the beggar. And when it's talking about Lazarus, who sat at the rich man's table and talks about the story, he was a beggar. It's the same kind of term that's used when it's talked about um, there at the, the lame man that sat at the gate of the temple called Beautiful and Peter and John come by. It's a beggar. It means someone who has absolutely nothing. And he says, that's what we are. And if you look at Paul, the way the world would have looked at Paul, Paul had absolutely nothing. He was a poor man. He would have been considered um, nothing much more than a beggar, even though we know he was a tent maker. We know that he worked, so there's not be a burden on anybody. But he still wasn't considered a rich man by worldly standards. Now, he used to have some stuff. Uh-huh. If you look back, he used to have some money. If you look back when he was Saul, he was a very reputable man in the community. He was somebody that everybody would have known and even feared. When he wrote this letter here to the church at Philippi, he said, chapter 3, verse 4, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof that he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. 
For what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, not count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Financially, materialistically, you look, Paul had nothing, yet he spent his entire life making other people rich. Paul was a spiritual billionaire. Paul was rich in the things that mattered. He knew how to draw from the unsearchable riches of God. He said in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So it might appear that Paul had nothing, but he was spiritually wealthy. And Paul left a long line of spiritual millionaires behind him, and he still is today. You and I are becoming spiritually wealthy by studying the letters that God used his hand to send down to you and I. So he wasn't just rich in his time. He was just sending things, and he tells us that's what you and I are supposed to be doing. We, we may be penniless. We may be poor. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. But it doesn't matter how poor we are in worldly standards. You and I, as children of God, are rich in faith. We are rich in the things of God. We are rich in what we have. And here's the great thing about what we have. Everybody we meet, we can give away what we have by the truckloads and can't get rid of it. Y'all didn't hear that. What we have in Christ, if we give to everybody we meet by the truckloads, the more of it we dump when we turn around, the more of it we have. Where'd that come from? And you try to get rid of it. But the more you pour the things of God into others, every time you turn around, the more you have. And that's what made Paul so spiritually wealthy. All he was constantly doing was trying to give others the glory of God, trying to give others the gospel of Jesus Christ, trying to tell them about the things of God. You and I have the same opportunities. Paul says, having nothing and yet possessing all things. Paul held no regards for material possessions. Paul wasn't worried about the things of this world. He had no place in his heart for the things of this world. He had no desires. He wasn't focused on the things of this world. He would never be a rich man as the way the world would look at him, but he was constantly adding to his spiritual possessions. He would never be wealthy as the way the world would look and see wealthy, but yet he was storing up treasures where moth and rust doth not corrupt, neither can thieves enter therein and steal. He was constantly storing up treasures. Anybody got some treasures stored up? That, that is our job. That's what we're to be doing is to be storing up. He is encouraging us here in this passage that we're to do the same thing. Set your affections on things above, not on things below. Everything in this world will come to nothing. And everybody in this world at some point will let you down. I'm sorry, I didn't mean y'all. I mean everybody else. Those other people out there let me down. I, I thank God for the ones that won't. Verse number 12, 11 and 12, it says, Oh, you Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, and our heart is enlarged. You're not straightened in us, but you're straightened in your own bowels. I'm, I'm not going to really cover these three right here. We may come back later, but basically Paul says there, there's no lack of room in my heart for you. There, there's no lack of room in, in our hearts for you saints out there. The lack of love is on your part. We, we love you wholly, 
He just don't love us back. Then he says, now for recompense and the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. But then I do want to look at verse number 14 here because this, he extends a call to service right here. And he begins talking more about you and I and how we ought to be living. But he says in verse number 14, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? And what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then we get the, the text for emerge, and this is what they come out. This is their base verse. This is the scripture that supports the emerge middle school program. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. I will receive you. Nowhere else in the Bible do you see the expression, to be not unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Old Testament or New, you're not going to find anywhere else. Paul is pointing out the fact right here that we are to be different. There ought to be something different about us. We, we are a changed people. We are a redeemed people. We're no longer what we used to be. We used to run in the world. We used to be in the things of the world, but we have been changed. We're not supposed to be like those in the world anymore. We're supposed to be different. Somebody say amen. It comes from the Old Testament law. In the Old Testament, it was forbidden that you put an ox and an ass on the same yoke. You could not put them in a plowshare together because one was a clean animal and the other was an unclean animal. And it was the law. You could not put them there together. I don't have time to preach that tonight. If you want to read about it, Deuteronomy chapter 22, take it and read it and study it. But you could not unequally yoke them in a plowshare. What Paul is telling us clearly here is that we are not to yoke ourselves up with an unbeliever. In every kind of way, a Christian is not to marry a non-Christian. A Christian is not to go into business with a partner that is a non-Christian. At no time are we supposed to yoke ourselves together, but, but the, the bottom line, we, we can't pull the plow together. At some point, we're going to begin to pull in opposite directions. You and I, as children of God, cannot pull in the direction of the world, and the direction of the world cannot continue pulling in the direction of God because they know not the things of God. So you and I cannot yoke ourselves with the people of the world. Number, number one, it'll cause us to compromise our integrity. At some point, if you yoke yourself up in a worldly situation, you're going to have to make a choice that, that will either weaken your testimony or cause you to compromise. Just being yoked with them alone weakens your testimony. The Bible is full of illustrations about People putting themselves in worldly situations or maybe unequally yoking themselves to the things of the world. Even a situation, a story as simple as the story of Lot. The first thing Lot did was he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Didn't say he went to Sodom, didn't say he was part. He just pitched his tent that way. That means he had a heart's desire for the things of the world. If you set your affection toward the things of the world, it's a matter of time till you'll wind up in the world. If you set your affections for worldly things, it's a matter of time till they'll draw you away from godly things. He pitched his tent toward Sodom. Before long, he moved his tent into Sodom. Before long, he became part of Sodom. And then all of a sudden, he becomes a, a leader there in Sodom. And now he's a part of the problem. He's no longer a part of the solution. The Bible gives us a lot of examples. I don't have time to really preach on those, but Elimelech moved to Moab. Granted, if he hadn't, we don't have the story of Ruth and all those things and the great stories, but the bottom line is they never were supposed to marry Moabite women. He never should have gone there. They went and he married ungodly women, and what you find out is they had other gods, and that became the problem. 
Even when the one sons went back, it was to worship the other gods. You look at Esau, he married a pair of pagan women in the land of Judah when Jehoshaphat married his, his son to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. You look at Samson, the Samson, the problems that he got in because he married that Philistine woman. And you know the problems that that caused him. All she wanted to know is where do you get your strength? She just wanted the money. The problem was because he married outside of the fellowship. He married what he was not supposed to marry. Um, you, you think about even Solomon and all of his wisdom and all of his riches and all that there is, the wisest and wealthiest man, but he began to marry pagan women. He began to marry women that were outside of God. It would be the same thing as unequally yoked women. And before you know it, he begins to worship other gods, which is the number one abomination against God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And you take God's wisest, wealthiest man, most blessed man, and all of a sudden he's living in absolute sin because he's worshiping false gods. You cannot be unequally yoked. We must guard even in the church. Even in the church. We must guard against mediocrity. We, we must guard against casual Christianity. I, I can go ahead and tell you, anybody that don't like to hear preaching that sin is wrong and will send you to hell, they probably just need to go ahead and move their membership. Anybody that don't like the truth of this book probably just needs to go ahead and find somebody else's pew to hold down. I'm not going to change the way I preach because God ain't told me to. Amen. Hell is still hell. Lost people are still going there, but the blood of Jesus still saves, and I'm going to keep preaching it. Amen. And that's what I was called to do. And I can't help it if it upsets somebody that every week I mention that I deserve to go to hell and ought to go to hell, but I'm thankful for the grace of God. That shouldn't be a downer to you. That ought to be a plus. That's about God's grace that it picked me up out of a hell I deserve. And even though I deserve to go there, I'm not going to. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We must guard against mediocrity. Peter, chapter 1 and verse 16, it says, Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. That is the commandment to you and I. We're supposed to strive. What does it mean when it says because it is written? That means somewhere in the Bible before it was already written. I didn't, I didn't put it down. I did mark it because I took time to read it today because I want to know where it came from. It's actually come from um, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. A perfect example of God's children mingling and it pulling them away from the things of God would be in the book of Ezra. You had that remnant of people who had gotten away from Babylon and they had gone back to the homeland. And the reason they went back is because they wanted to worship their God. They wanted to be able to serve their God in a way that was pleasing to their God. So they went back to the homeland. And they, in the homeland, they began to rebuild the temple that they might have this place of worship. But then they began to mingle with the foreign people. They began to mingle with the, with the strangers, those who were not of the children of God. Then they began to marry outside of the Jews. And before you know it, they've quit working on the temple. And for 50 years, they did not work on the temple of God. They worked on their own houses, and they found themselves worshiping foreign gods. And it all started because they had themselves unequally yoked. 
Ezra comes back and he sets some, some straight-up standards in the law. He demanded at all costs that there be a complete and a rigid separation from all of those of the world. That's all Paul is telling us. You cannot be unequally yoked with unbelievers and walk in line with the things of God. When God created the heaven and the earth, we know the Bible says it was out form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The very first thing that happened is the Spirit of God moved upon the darkness. But then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God divided the light from the darkness. The light God called day, the darkness called night, the evening morning were the first day. But when God looked at what he did, he saw that it was good. The next thing that God did, he divided the waters from the waters. It said he created a mist in the firmament. He put his hands in the waters. He divided the waters from above, from that which was beneath. The waters above represent the kingdom of God. That which is beneath represents the thing of the world. But the bottom line is he divided things when he came in. He divided light and darkness. He divided the waters. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is heaven. But whoso shall deny me before men, him also will I deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. Now, I'm not come to send peace but a sword. For I'm come to set man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall it be of his own household. Jesus said, I came to make a division between those who follow me and those who don't. And you can't walk with me if you're walking with the ones who don't. He said in chapter 25, verse 31, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, still in Matthew, that all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another. As a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he said, that's a lot of S's. Yeah, I'll be very careful reading that. I'm going to slow down and read that a little more cautiously. He shall set the sheep on his right hand. That's a good section. Whew, we made it past it. But the goats, of which side I was almost having to sit on, on the left hand. Saved people are to be a sanctified people set apart. God doesn't put them together. God doesn't view them together. God doesn't want them together. Our job is to tell them about Jesus, but not to yoke up with them. Not to do the things that do. He tells us not to be unequally yoked, but then he gives us these reasons why. The first thing we see here in verse 14 is he, he demands righteousness. What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Sooner or later, a Christian who yokes up with an unbeliever, whatever, whether it be marriage, whether it be business, whatever it is, sooner or later the Christian will be put in a situation where they must compromise what is right. They will have to compromise their faith or either they'll have to part things off. God's standards and God's morals are very different than those of the world. Two people heard what I said. God's standards and God's morals are much higher than those of the world. You cannot operate down here on this level if you are a child of God and the child of the world cannot and will not operate at this level. Not only does he Say that righteousness demands it, but reality demands it. What communion hath light with darkness? One thing that is an absolute fact, and it is totally, completely impossible, impossible for light and dark to coexist. You can take the bumper stickers off the windows. It is impossible for children of God and children of the world to coexist in habitation. It is impossible for light and darkness to coexist. Where light shines, 
darkness has got to get out of town. Where light shines, darkness has to flee. When the light comes on, darkness has got to get out of town. There ain't no place around for it. When Paul wrote his letter to the church at Colossae, he said in chapter 1 and verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from, somebody's going to get happy, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Somebody ought to like that. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. Too many Christians today think they can walk with one foot in the light and one foot in the darkness. They think they can walk with one foot in this world and one foot in that world. One on this side of the line and one on that side of the line. But I said it last week when we were talking about God drew a line in the sand. You're either all on God's side or you're all on the world's side. But God cannot and will not allow you to straddle the fence and call yourself a child of his. That word translated there here in the book of Colossians means to remove. God has removed you and I from a world of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. There is no communion between light and darkness. In the book of Exodus, when God brought the plagues on Pharaoh, you know the stories, the, the frogs and the flies and the lice and all the things that God brought on Pharaoh to, to let his people go. The very last plague that, that God brought before bringing the death of the firstborn son, the very last plague that he brought in was the plague of darkness. There was no warning. Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Egypt was in a dark that was so dark and so thick you could feel it. People wouldn't even leave their house. They couldn't even get out. In their house was dark. Outside was dark. Everything was dark. But inside of the house of God's children, there was light. For you and I to mingle with the dark would have been like one of those children of Israel trying to get out of their house, stumble through the dark, and go over and have fellowship with one of those, those Egyptians. They had no business there, and the same thing is true with you and I. We have no business yoking ourselves up in that situation. Reality demands separation. We are to be a people of light. Now that we're children of light, we have no place in the dark things of this world, we have no place in the philosophies of this world. We have no place in, in the religions, the false religions of this world or in the, the, the rationalisms of this world. You and I, as children of the light, we have no place in darkness. Somebody say amen and I'll move on. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Fifteen times in the Old Testament you'll find this word Belial. But only one time right here is the only time you'll find it in the New Testament. The, the, word, the word means extreme wickedness. The, the word that, that he uses here for concord is referring to like a band or a symphony orchestra that you play together to make beautiful harmony. It means playing together, making music together. Paul says right there, you and I as children of Christ have no business making melody with that which is extremely wicked. Do I need to break that down better? Does everybody understand what that sentence says? You and I, as children of God, have no business playing in the band, making melody with those of extreme wickedness. Children of God, 
children of the darkness. Between Jesus Christ and the devil, there is no harmony. The devil hates Jesus Christ. The devil fears Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ came to destroy everything that the devil is and everything that the devil does. It's written, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning for the purpose of the Son. God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So far as the human race is concerned, the battle began there at the fall of Adam and Eve. At that point, God told the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That is the first great promise in the Bible. That is also the first prophecy in the Bible. At Calvary, we saw the heel of Jesus bruised. But at the second coming, we're going to see the head of Satan bruised. Prophecy's coming. It'll all take place. Three chapters from the beginning of the Bible, we see the devil for the first time. Three chapters from the end of the Bible, we see him for the last time. We see him bound and cast into a bottomless pit for a thousand years. We see him that he's loosed for a season that that he sets about. But then we see him cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20.10, where the beast and the false prophet are. And there he shall be tormented day and night forever. And he's gone and done forever. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. There's a conflict going on here. There's this great conflict of the ages. There's this this battle raging and going on. Now, you've heard me say it before. If we had spiritual eyes to see, we'd be terrified. I believe with all my heart, if you could see the spiritual warfare taking place around you and your family, you'd be terrified. But you'd also know the power of God to see what he's protecting you from, to see what he's keeping you from, and to know that he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you can ask or think. But, but here's the deal of all this great warfare that's going on. We're in the middle of this thing. Mankind is the middle of this battle. Mankind is the soul that is being sought for. I think it was Sunday that I said it. I, well, Tim had sent that text out to us about what, how valuable must the soul be that both God and the devil are after it. I also said on Sunday, you and I will never know how much we cost. We will never be able to understand the price that was paid for us. We will never be able to fully comprehend what God Almighty paid for my soul and for yours. We will never be able to understand what we're worth. God paid a maximum, premium price for you and I. He paid the ultimate, highest price that could ever be paid for anything. He paid that for our soul. And he says, you have no business walking with where I brought you from. I purchased your soul. I bought you out of that stuff. I brought you out of that stuff. I've redeemed you. Set your feet upon a rock. I've given you a new name in glory. I've given you a white robe. I've given you a crown. I've given you a name. You are a child of God, and you have no business walking back there in the things from which you came. Nor do you have any business yoking yourself up with them. They will simply drag you down. Oh, I know. I'll just marry them and I'll change them. We'll just partner up in business because they got money and they got some good business sense and we'll work it all out. No, you won't. Because you're starting out against the commandment of God. You cannot start out anything wrong and expect it to be right. 
I need to go over and preach that to the teenagers in their relationships when I talk about premarital stuff. You cannot start out anything wrong and expect it to be right. You got to start out in, in God's eyes and in God's law. God says that we're not to be unequally yoked. What part? Oh, I got to stop. Um, what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? The word for infidel means somebody that's faithless. Simply put, it's somebody who's not a believer in Christ. Amos chapter 3, verse 3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? Um, Lord willing, if Jesus don't come get us, we show up here next Wednesday night. Lord willing, we'll, we'll pick up right here um, and, and, and start back up. And, and maybe we'll finish this chapter next week. But for tonight, we, we do still have just a few minutes. Um, I'm sorry we got less time than we normally need to pray, but let's take what time we got. Let's come down and pray, certainly for these prayer requests. Um, I want you to pray for all those in need, pray for the sick. I want you to be in specific prayer for tomorrow night. Um, Y'all know what we have here, Harvest Revival. Matter of fact, Ori is here if you want to get a chance to meet her. I told you all a little bit about her Sunday um, and that she's actually heading this thing up. She's here if you want to get a chance to meet her after church. be a great opportunity, but I want you to be in prayer for tomorrow night that the power of God would move in this place. I want you to be in prayer. I want you to be in prayer that it rains. It rains cats and dogs. Pray that it don't rain Friday and Saturday. But pray that it does rain tomorrow. I hope can't none of them get out there. And that way they might as well just come on here. If the only reason they're here is because they ain't got nowhere else to go because it's raining, that's good enough for me as long as we get them here. But what I do want us to do is come together and worship. So um, if we, we could be in prayer for that, also be in prayer for Friday and Saturday night. It is our prayer that God would bring lost souls. I'm praying right now for people that ain't never heard of Judgment Journey, don't know what it is, don't even know that they're coming. But somebody will meet them, somebody invite them, somebody come in that souls would be saved. That is our number one goal, and that souls be saved. Number two is that Christian lives be changed, that people be reminded time is of the essence. Jesus Christ is coming back. It's not just a story in a book. It is the story of what's going to happen in the future. And the future's not all that far off. We keep clicking them off one day at a time, but one day the trumpet's going to sound. And it's our job to sound the alarm. It's our job to let Christians know. It is our job to tell people, Jesus is coming. We need to make a difference.